All right, guys. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 6. Turn our attention to God's Word, John chapter 6. And when you get there, you'll notice John 6 is quite a long chapter. It's, I haven't checked, but I'm pretty confident it's probably the longest in the whole Gospel of John. Uh, it is 71 verses. Uh, so we're only going to cover about the first third of the chapter uh, today. But I would say that it is, it is one of my favorite chapters in John. It's one of the richest theologically, especially it has to, as it has to do with uh, the sovereignty of God and our salvation. But it's a, also just because it's just sort of a, a, a it's just a crazy chapter in, in John. You've got, got Jesus feeding the 5,000. You've got Jesus walking on water. Uh, you have him later in the chapter uh, making an, one of the seven different I am statements in John's gospel when he says, I am the bread of life. And, um, and that, that alone is so, that statement in this chapter is just so deep and rich theologically in, 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 it, in its imagery. Um, and I will say also, just to get our bearings for today, Jesus' statement later in the chapter about being the bread of life is the high point of this chapter of John 6. And so really, everything in the chapter, beginning with what we're going to look at today, everything in this chapter uh, is aimed at undergirding that statement, I am the bread of life, undergirding it, and illustrating the meaning and all the significance of what he says there. That being the case, and the fact that we won't get to that statement this week, but knowing that everything we look at today is going to be undergirding that statement that we're not going to yet look at, um, we're going to hold off on on, on, on sort of uh, explaining the full significance of what we, we're going to look at today until next week, like the full significance of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the full uh, canonical theological significance of Jesus walking on the water, etc., uh, until next week when we can combine it with Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. But even with that, there is still beautiful truth to be seen in our passage today. Verses 1 to 21 is what we're going to look at today. Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water. So if you found that place in your Bible, let's go ahead and read the passage, and then I'll lay out what I'd like us to see in it. So we're in John 6. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1, reading through verse 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to, ha to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place. I love how the little details like this get brought up in the, John even points out, there's a lot of grass here. And if you read it in Mark's gospel, it says they had them sit down on the green grass. <laughs> the green grass, so it was really green. I guess if you in a desert place, you notice the green places. But anyway, random. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who, was, who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And they, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at, hand, at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask as we come to it that you would help us come humbly to it and receptive to what your spirit would say to us. Please give us eyes to see the truth here. Give us minds to understand what you would uh, convey to us in these words. Give us hearts to embrace and, and love and cherish and, and, and see as important with the importance that it, it really has. See that. Embrace it. Love it. Wills to obey. Give us that we might obey whatever you would call us to do. Would you please give us all ears to hear? Give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said, when we come back next week, there were so many things here that I'm just not going to, dive into today, like the fact that it is the Passover. I'm not going to dive deeply into that. The fact that they were about to, this is the prophet who is to come. I'm not going to delve into that yet, or they're going to make him king by force. We're just going to put that on the, on the shelf until next week, but uh, and see how all that relates to I am the bread of life, and how it all relates to Jesus fulfilling important realities foreshadowed in the Old Testament. But as we, as we just look at the, the events that we have right in front of us in these two stories, there, and just look at them in their own right. I think there's still plenty for us to see. Um, so here's how I'd like us to break it down and think through it. If you're taking notes, I'd like to consider it from three different angles. One, just the first story in verses 1 to 15 of Jesus feeding the 5,000, I, I want us to see what it can teach us just generally about the nature of the Christian's life, the nature of the Christian's life. I think there's just a, a general truth that we can see about the nature of the Christian's life. If you're a, a Christian, something that's just generally true about your life as a Christian following Christ in this world that we can see in this story. Now, and, and to see this, I want to zoom in a little on uh, the question 
that Jesus asks his disciples before he performs the miracle. The question that he asks them, what are their responses, and then obviously the miracle itself of feeding the 5,000, the nature of the Christian's life. Then looking at verses 16 to 21, in the story of Jesus walking on the water, I want us to see what it can teach us about the nature of the Christian's faith, the nature of our faith. We'll take particular notice of what Jesus says to his disciples as they see him walking on the water. Sure, we're going to talk about him walking on water, but um, we're going to see what he says to them when they see him and are initially frightened. We'll make reference also to how this story is relayed to us in other Gospels. Finally, I want us to sweep back through this whole passage and just recall what it can teach us about the nature of the Christian's world, the nature of this world that we live in, not just the the nature of our life in it and our faith in it, but just the world itself that we live in. This is a helpful thing to remember as we simply go through our day as believers in every circumstance, just have a true biblical understanding of this world that we're living in and, and serving Christ in. So with that, let's dive into our text and look first at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and what it can teach us generally about the nature of the Christian's life. So in verse 1, uh, you know, well, this chapter begins sort of in a very familiar way in the Gospel of John. If you've been here and studying through it with us, John is constantly noting time and place after this, the next day, whatever it may be, uh, and, and, and where they are, time and place. He says, verse 1, after this. And then in verse 4, he gets more specific, saying that it was the Passover The feast of the Jews was at hand. And by the way, there are three different Passovers in John's gospel. We've already seen one. Remember Jesus in chapter 2 turned water into wine, and immediately after that story, he went into the temple. That's when he drove out the money changers and drove out the sacrificial animals. That was during the Passover. That's the first Passover in John's gospel. And then at the end of the gospel, or really, I say the end of the gospel, About halfway through John's gospel, it slows down to a creeping halt. Half the gospel of John has to do with the last week of of Jesus' life. It slows to a creeping pace. But at the end of chapter 11, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, it tells us that the Passover was at hand. And so the the events of the last week of Jesus' earthly life, culminating in the cross and resurrection, was happening at the third Passover in John's gospel. And here's the second one. Um, And... uh, and, and so, meaning the, the it just, well, it's a time stamp. So what it, what it can tell you is what we're reading here of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water, next week seeing that he says, I'm the bread of life, we're like a year away from his death and resurrection. So we're about a, about a year away from those things. All right, so John tells us where they are as well. Um, they're around the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jesus had gone up to a mountainside together with, the, with his disciples. Again, we'll see some of the significance of those details next week when we look at the rest of the chapter. But for now, we're going to think about this story as if we don't have the rest of the chapter. This is all we have. We just have these stories. And just think about it just from the vantage point of Jesus with his disciples. From the, for the purpose of this story, the fact that it was the Passover might explain, it says that some of them were following him because, he was, because of the signs he was doing on the sick, but then the, you, you get the sense that there's even more coming to him beyond that, and it tells us because it was the Passover. So maybe there were large crowds on their way to Jerusalem for the feast, and they were coming to see Jesus on their way. But like I said earlier, from what happens here, I want us to take away something that, that teaches us something about the nature of the Christian's life, your life in this world as a follower of Christ. And to see it, 
we don't need to necessarily just take note of the miracle that happens, but the conversation that leads to it between Jesus and the disciples. So looking down at verse 5, it begins by saying that Jesus lifted up his eyes and he saw that a large crowd was coming to him. Now, again, read your Bible autobiographically. Just put yourself in the situation. Just imagine that you're one of the disciples. You're there on that mountain with Jesus. Uh, If Jesus saw the crowds coming, you too probably saw the crowds coming. And what are you thinking in that moment? Like, just imagine you are one of them. What are you thinking in that moment? Like, what is going through your mind? You're on the mountainside with Jesus, and you see all this huge crowd of people coming up to you. What are you thinking about in that moment? Maybe if you're an, an extrovert, you're like, sweet, like all these people are coming. But if you're not, and even if you are, you're probably not always like that. Even if you're not, you, you, you might be thinking, Dad, gum. Like, that, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest. That's how I would feel like I'm finally, I'm finally here. You're, like, you're probably enjoying your time on the mountainside with Jesus. I mean, we're talking about you're in Israel in the springtime. It's like sunny and 70, and you're on the mountainside. You're chilling with Jesus, and then all the people show up, Right? You didn't invite them, and if we're honest, you might just be a little bit annoyed by it. I mean, I'm just, cards on the table. I probably would be, at least from time to time I would be. Put yourself, and when you're reading your Bible, I mean, I'm telling you this all the time, just put yourself in the situation. You might see things and notice things, little wrinkles here and there that, that, that are important to you, that tell you something about your life in this world that you might not otherwise see. So there we are. We're there with the other disciples, and we with Jesus. We see the crowds coming up. We're kind of in our hearts. We're not wanting to say anything, but you're already kind of annoyed that all these people are coming. And then Jesus says something. And and, and, and at the end of verse 5, he singles out Philip. Maybe Philip's sitting next to you. And he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? And you're like, what? Like, you were probably wondering what was going to happen when they all finally got up to you. Like, you're probably thinking, what is Jesus going to say to them? What's he going to do? What are they going to ask for? You've probably seen all kinds of people. You've already, you know, not probably, you have. If you've been following, you've, you've already seen crowds come up to him asking for this or that. My son is sick. Just say the word, those kind of things. But now he turns to Philip and he asks Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? I mean, you have to believe that, that, that some, at least some of the disciples were, were thinking, why do we have to feed these people? Like, we didn't invite them. They're just coming. They're grown people. Like, why do we have to feed these people? But that teaches you something about the nature of the Christian's life. Like, that it is incumbent upon us. Like, the, the, the Scriptures tell us later in the New Testament to, to always be showing hospitality. Like, it is incumbent upon the followers of Christ, regardless of how we feel in the moment. Dad, gum, all these people are coming. It's incumbent upon us, regardless of how we feel, to think first about how we can love and how we can serve the people right in front of us. That's, and Paul would 
say it this way later to the Philippians. Let each of you, this is Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. When I confess to you that sometimes I would be like, oh, man, that's me looking to my own interests. That's me just wanting to chill on the mountainside with Jesus, just me and Jesus, right? And, 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 and I have to put that aside. Or not even put that aside. I, in a twisted way, I think I have to put that aside to serve these people. But really, that is doing the proper thing with my relationship with Jesus to serve these people that are right in front of me. But the story teaches us even more than that. It's more than, it's more than just, when we think about what does this teach us about the Christian life? Yes, it teaches us that our first instinct as his followers is to love and serve the people right in front of us, even those we didn't expect to be there. That is true, but it tells us even more than that about the Christian life. It's more than just we should think of them before ourselves, which is genuinely to be our first instinct, because it was the first instinct of Jesus, and His Spirit's living in us to produce His character and His life in us, so that ought to be our first instinct, but it's more than that. Because what Jesus reveals in asking Philip that question is not that his first instinct should be mercy toward them and a desire toward them, but he's also revealing what to him, even if he felt that mercy, uh, what to him, that sometimes we know the task that we're, we're called to do, but it seems overwhelming. Like, even if Philip was thinking, yeah, we ought to feed these people, he might have still felt like, but there's a lot of people. Like, how are we going to do it? Sometimes, w- even when we know the, the act of service, the act of love that we're to, to, to show toward the people right in front of us, sometimes when we know what we would like to do, the doing of it and the pulling it off might seem overwhelming. And like, uh, we don't know how in the world to do what we feel like we should do. Philip, no doubt, went from knowing that we need to love and and serve these people rather than be annoyed by them, to how in the world would we ever possibly feed this many people? Ministry in the Christian life feels like that more times than not. Like, hospitality is hard. Service and love is hard sometimes. Sometimes you know what you ought to do, and you have no idea how it's going to be pulled off. And Jesus knew this because it says in verse 6, he said this to test him. He knew, Jesus knew the incredulity, that would be, incredulity would be precisely what Philip was feeling in that moment. Like, are you kidding me, Jesus? Like, how could we, yeah, I'm not totally shocked that you said we ought to feed these people. How in the world would we ever afford to feed 5,000 people? if not more, if 5,000 could have just been the men. Jesus is the one who put money in his mind, by the way, as a possible way to meet this need. And verse 6 says that he did this to test Philip. Philip would answer this in verse 7, taking the bait of the question saying, 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get just a little. It would take, it, it would take not far away from a whole year's pay, by the way, is what he's saying to have enough just bread for each of these people just to have a little bit of bread. 
And we're told in verse 6, if you're looking at the verse, after it says that Jesus asked Philip to, this question to test him, that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He, he, wanted, he, he just wanted to test Philip to see what his instinct was going to be. He had, Philip had already witnessed Jesus doing uh, miracles merely with a spoken word. When Jesus mentioned money, how are we, where are we going to get up enough money to buy these? He, he had seen enough to, to have responded, Jesus, you know we don't need money. We don't need money. We just came from this place where this guy's son was sick, and you didn't even go there just from where you were standing. You healed him from another town just with a spoken word. He's like, go home. Your son is well. What do you mean where are we going to? Jesus, you don't need money. He had seen enough to respond that way in faith. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. When the Lord involves us, and he wants to involve us in a ministry that seems overwhelming to us, he already knows what he's going to do. He already knows what he's going to do and do through us. He just wanted to involve his disciples on the blessing. But even with all that he had seen, Philip still couldn't think past trusting only in what money could provide for the situation. And he's like, dude, I don't know how we're going to have this much money. But he wasn't the only one. It says also in verse 8 that Peter's brother, Andrew, even if he didn't take the bait and trusted in money, he was just looking around at whatever materials they had on hand. And he's like, well, we don't even have much of that either. He's like, there's a, I mean, there's a boy over here who's got five loaves of bread and two fish funny that whoever that boy was left unnamed to us I wouldn't be surprised like how did how did Andrew know that this boy had bread and fish it's I, I like to imagine that 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 little boy was like I've got bread and fish you know childlike faith like I've got something and he probably trusted that Jesus could do something with it right childlike faith but the disciple Andrew had, li had lived just long enough to be a little more jaded, and he's, he's like, what is this for so many? Like, what are you going to do with that? I hate to say it, but I figure if it's too often true of me, it probably is of you too. This is us. This is us. We miss opportunities to serve because our eyes are on the wrong thing. Our we miss opportunities to serve because we can't afford to do that. We miss opportunities to serve because I only have this much. And there's so many. There's such a big need. What if they all show up? The nature of the Christian's life in this world is to see the people right in front of us have the first instinct to love and serve them and trust that the Lord knows how he will make that happen. And it's going to be all right. We don't need to worry about it. It's always his will, and it's for his glory anyway. So he's going to make it happen. And he might surprise you in the way he does. How does and how does he make it happen? He told the disciples to ask everyone to sit down, as Mark says, on the green grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he fed the multitude with it, miraculously. He took ordinary means. He just took bread and fish. He took ordinary means, and he, he sovereignly caused them to be sufficient. 
And notice how sufficient. Philip had sort of, in a smart aleck way, said that even with 200 denarii, even with almost a year's wages, even with that much money, we couldn't buy enough bread for them to even to get a, a few crumbs, even a little bit. Jesus multiplied the means, and verse 11 says, all the people got as much as they wanted. And it could be that the Lord worked in their hearts and they didn't want very much. <laughs> they were satisfied with the little. I don't know, but they got as much as they wanted. Verse 12 says, they had eaten their fill. The Lord knew what he wanted to do. Inexplicable to anyone watching, because humanly speaking, it is. But that's the nature of the Christian's life. That's the nature of the Christian's life. We don't do ministry in ways that are restricted by whatever is explainable, humanly speaking. We don't do ministry in ways that are restricted to whatever is explainable, humanly speaking. Why? Why is the nature of the Christian's life that way? Because of the nature of the Christian's faith. The nature of the Christian's faith. That is certainly something we see in the next episode of our passage. Jesus tested the faith of his disciples at the feeding of the 5,000. And even when they saw with their own eyes what they didn't foresee and trust by faith, the Lord had mercy on them to remind them again of the sure faith by which they could live their lives as his followers. How so? Well, when the day had, had, was done and it had gone dark, uh, his disciples, Jesus had, remember, he, they came to take him and make him king by force. So Jesus sort of left the company of his disciples and everybody else, and he went up on the mountain by himself again. So, I mean, his disciples were probably like, Jesus is still not here. Jesus is still not here. So let's just go. Well, Jesus will find his way back. Let's just get a boat and go. They got in a boat and went, and you know the story. Uh, they go out. Sea of Galilee, they'd gone out three or four miles, and then the wind started blowing, the water got rough, and it was at that point that they saw Jesus coming out to them, not in a boat of his own, walking to them on the water. This is a story that we also find in Matthew and Mark. By the way, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only story that Jesus did that is told in all four Gospels, all four of them. But the walk, walking on the water is also found in Matthew and Mark. And in all three of these instances, Matthew, Mark, and John, we find the same emphasis in all the stories. And that emphasis, not surprisingly, is the deity of Jesus and, and the authority of Jesus over all things as a result of his deity. Um, here in John 6, when they're afraid, they're afraid, wouldn't you be? I mean, like, yeah, wouldn't you be? When they see him defying the laws of physics and walking to them on the water like it's no big thing, Jesus tells them, if you're looking in your Bible, he tells them in verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. It's not quite what he said. It's almost what he said. In, in smoothed out English, I guess that's what he said. But he literally says, I am, do not be afraid. I am, do not be afraid. And there in that passage, the disciples, 
he takes on his, the disciples heard him take on himself the very name of God, I am. Name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. I am who I am. Jesus walking on the water. The creator and Lord over the very water he was walking on. I am. Don't be afraid. Jesus says the very same thing in Matthew's version of the story. Matthew 14, 27, I am, do not be afraid. And there in that passage, the disciples respond with, truly, you are the Son of God, which is not a slightly lesser than God name. We've already seen that on Wednesday night. Son of God is a title of deity itself. In Mark's telling of this story, in Mark chapter 6 of Jesus walking on the water, Mark also emphasizes the deity of Jesus, the deity and authority of Jesus over nature and all things. But he emphasizes it in a unique way. Mark, in Mark 6.48, this is what we read in Mark 6.48. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. That's strange. It, it, it sounds like he's just saying he was walking on the water and he's just going to walk right on by like I'll beat you to the other side. No, it doesn't mean that he just wanted to walk. When Mark says he meant to pass by them, he's not just saying literally he wanted to walk right by them. No, that phrase, pass by them, has deep Old Testament roots. Um, the phrase, pass by them, is, is most pertinently found in Exodus 33 and 1 Kings 19 with Moses, with Elijah, to refer to God causing his glory to pass by them, right? Hiding them in the cleft of the rock while his glory passes by them. Passing by refers to manifesting, God manifesting his glory to them. And this is Jesus. When Mark says Jesus meant to pass by them as he walked on the water, he is pointing out that Jesus was intending his glory as God to be manifested to them. Why did Jesus perform this miracle at precisely this moment? It's not unconnected, in my view, from what had just happened with the feeding of the 5,000. He wanted his disciples to know that they could serve people in Christ's name. They could do whatever Christ called them to do beyond what they humanly speaking thought they could do because Christ whom they served, is God himself and Lord over all things. He's able to bring to pass and to multiply whatever is necessary for us to serve him and serve others and bring glory to his name. He's able to do that. That's the nature of our faith. The nature of the Christian life is at times overwhelming, but we can proceed because of the nature of our faith, because the nature of our faith is it is God Himself, His Spirit. Christ, is our Lord, is God Himself who can provide, Lord over all things, can provide whatever we need to do, what humanly speaking might seem overwhelming. And that just gets us to our last thought. Thinking back over this whole passage, this whole passage so far, putting it all together, it should cause us to think differently about the world we live in as believers, just the nature of the Christian's world. All of this 
should cause us to see the world. We don't, we don't need to be so distracted in our phones or distracted by whatever else to just miss the most important things. When you walk outside, we should just, as Christians, we should see the world around us explicitly as the creation of God, this world that we inhabit. And He's Lord over all of it, not just the circumstances, but the elements of the world. Like, as, as some recent writers have put it, it's almost a more enchanted view of this world we live in. Like, He's not just Lord over situations. He's, wor- he's Lord over the very elements of the world. The very means that we have with which to serve Him. Don't have a faithless or a, just a purely mechanical view of the world you live in. Sure, God created it to operate according to certain immovable and, and fixed laws, but, but that doesn't mean that it is a purely mechanical world. Don't have a faithless or a pure, purely mechanical. God is able to multiply the loaves and the fishes. Right? Beyond what is humanly explainable, he walks on the water to his disciples. God, and he's not just now like this. This is from beginning to end. You see God doing things like this for his people, Old Testament and New Testament. God did this for his people in the Old Testament when he told the wilderness generation, told them at the beginning and the end of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 8, as well as Deuteronomy 29, in Deuteronomy 25, he told the wilderness generation, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. And your sandals have not worn off your feet. You think, you think it, you're wearing a vintage Auburn sweatshirt when it was from like 1996. These guys were wearing the stuff they were wearing 40 years ago. Shoes on their feet 40 years ago. Looks brand new. Hasn't worn out. We see the, we see the Lord provide like this for Elijah in 1 Kings 17 during a drought in the land. Initially in 1 Kings 17, 6 it says, the ravens brought him bread. He's not just king over circumstances. He's Lord over the elements of the world. Ravens brought him supper. Right? The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook until it dried up in the drought. In the very next story in that chapter, 1 Kings 17. Elijah goes to, to the house of the widow of Zarephath, and the Lord provides for her. And he asks her for, for, you know, a cake, bread to eat, and she's like, I don't have enough flour, I don't have enough oil to make you even a cake. I'm sorry. But verse, verses 14 to 16 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. It's not because... There was that much flour. There wasn't. She was not stupid. She's like, I don't have enough for one cake. 
she had made a lot of cakes. She knew how much flour and oil it took to make a cake. She's like, I don't have enough. But according to the word of the Lord, it did not ever run out for many days. The Lord caused, read the Old Testament, the Lord caused like confusion to, to happen among the enemies of Israel so that, so that Israel uh, could, could uh, have success against them in battle. Not because they were bigger or mightier or stronger, just randomly God made them get all confused and stuff. He just does that. He stirred up King Cyrus's heart. Pagan king, Persian king, stirred up his heart in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy to send the people of Israel home from exile. Go rebuild your temple. Go rebuild Jerusalem. He's the same sovereign God in Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And we live in this world. We live in this world. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may not just do but abound in every good work. You feel how superlative that is? All sufficiency in all things at all times, abounding in every good work. He did work beyond their expectations. He can work beyond our expectations, and He will work beyond our expectations when we walk by faith in His provision and we sincerely desire to bring glory to His name in loving and serving others in His name. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this precious word. Thank you that, that even when there's more to it than this, than what we thought about today, there is, a, there is still this, this deep and sweet encouragement uh, that we can love and serve others even when it's hard, even when we can't figure out how to do it, or we don't know how it's going to be pulled off, even when more show up than we thought were coming. You are Lord over the loaves and the fish. And you can make all grace abound to us for the glory of your name. So we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.